0: Hey, welcome to the Bible and the English major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. this podcast, please follow it wherever you're listening today and find me on social media. I love to hear from listeners. Links are in the show notes. Hey team, I'd like to start with a little announcement. Father's Day is in a couple of weeks. My husband Matt is a fantastic father to our kids. So instead of spending Father's Day putting out the next podcast, I'd like him to enjoy his day. So we're going to release the next episode, not in two weeks, but three. So he has more time to do all that auditory magic that he does so well. And now I invite you to imagine a pocket watch sways before your eyes. You are getting very sleepy. Listen to my voice. You've never read the story I'm about to speed run. You are unfamiliar with its traditional title. You've never heard a sermon about it, and you just forgot it can be found in John 8, 1 through 11. This story is brand new to you. Now focus. Here's today's vital question. What's the most exciting, pivotal part of the story I'm about to speedrun for you? Where does your attention grow? Where does it peak, and when do you relax? What's the climax of the story, the biggest clue to understanding the whole thing? Pay attention to your feelings as you listen. It is time for the Bible story speed run. On my mark, get set, go. Jesus was teaching in the temple when some teachers of the law and some Pharisees brought in a woman and made her stand in front of all of them. They said this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. The law of Moses demands that we stone such women. Jesus, what do you say? They said this to test him. So, stooping down, Jesus wrote in the dirt, and then the Pharisees and teachers of the law pressed even harder on him, forcing him to answer their questions. So Jesus stood, looked at them, and said, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. He stooped down again, and slowly, one by one, they trickled out. He stood again, addressed the woman, and said, Does no one condemn you? She said, No one, sir. And so he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Fifty-three seconds, thank you. Here's what you need to know. This is the part where I explain some context. So, what's your answer? What's the most exciting part of the story? If it were turned into a movie, where's the scene you couldn't pause no matter how badly you had to pee? If you're letting your emotions decide, you know it's right around that famous line Jesus says, right? Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. But not everyone can trust their emotions on this one. The bias that has driven interpreters to name the story after the woman and her alleged sin has also compelled them to locate its climax and central theme in the last two verses. Augustine writes in his homily 33 on the Gospel of John, quote, There remained alone they too a wretch, that's the woman, and mercy, and that's Jesus, end quote. Gail O'Day points out that interpreters have since declared Augustine's phrase the perfect summary, and quotes Rudolf Schneckenberg, who considers it, quote, a theologically precise lapidary phrase, end quote. In other words, Augustine's observations are so astute that they should be engraved in stone. In many ways, they have been, influencing our reading ever since. Whether we've been taught the main point of the story is her sexual shame, or, more mildly, that Jesus doesn't judge her, so we shouldn't either, it's time to take back the narrative. Super readers, unite! Our feelings already tell us where the climax is, but when taking on the patriarchy, I've noticed that pointing out how something feels won't get you far. Luckily, we English majors have patriarchs of our own. Let me remind you of a guy named Aristotle. He wrote a foundational bit of literary criticism called The Poetics in 335 BC, describing the plot structure of the Greek tragedies of his day. Perhaps you remember Oedipus, who kills his father and marries his mother? Or Antigone, who is buried alive for giving funeral rites to her brother? As I read, I made a happy discovery. This gospel story contains the same elements Aristotle observed in the Greek tragedies. Do you know what this means? We can use the observations of one patriarch to school the other's. First, we must ask an important question. Did our author read Aristotle? Jews and Greeks weren't exactly buddies when the Gospels were written. However, first-century Judaism was immersed in Greco-Roman literary and rhetorical practice. Even if the Gospel writers were unlikely to be personally familiar with Aristotle's criticism or the tragedies he comments on, Dorothy Lee claims, quote, these works need not have been read or heard for their methods and devices to be employed within the culture of the day, end quote. Wherever our playful author got those methods and devices, he knew a thing or two about crafting a good drama. He also knew the axiom formulated by a brilliant friend of mine. When the story veers, open your ears. Our gospel story follows the pattern of a Greek tragedy, but it strays in one spot. We'll pay extra attention there so we won't miss the author's critical point. You're gonna like it! Let's get on with the show, the part where we really dive into the story. of Greek tragedy that I want to point out in our story. Grab your pitas and hummus and let's do this. Element number one, desis. Desis is all the action in a story that leads up to the climax. Its literal translation is tying, which refers to every plot thread woven together to form a more complex knot of tension. The first threads of plot in the story are exposition. Exposition we discover the setting, the temple, early in the morning, and the main character, Jesus, teaching the crowd. Nothing too tangly yet, but check out the following line. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees barge in, forcing a woman to stand, humiliated before them, while they proclaim that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Can't you just hear the murmurs rippling through the crowd? The teachers and Pharisees add another thread, reminding Jesus that the law calls for the death of such women. Finally, pulling it tight, they ask Jesus, now what do you say? In case we were unsure, the narrator helpfully adds, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In just six verses, we've got a tense little knot comprised of a cornered Jesus, a scandalized crowd, a bloodthirsty mob of accusers, and a terrified woman with no one to defend her. It's all that Aristotle calls desis. Element number two is crisis. Jesus bends down and writes to cut the tension and shift the power balance, but the accusers won't be deterred. They insist on an answer and create a do-or-die crisis moment. Our main character must act. Will Jesus defend the Mosaic law and allow them to murder her? Will he protect her and give them more reason to turn on him? This, by the way, is an excellent example of the tragic dilemma that Edgar Roberts and Henry Jacobs explain happens when the protagonist, quote, faces two equally difficult or unacceptable choices, either one of which leads to disaster, end quote. The fixated crowd, the callous accusers, the wide-eyed trembling woman, all wait. We wait. How is Jesus going to get out of this? Element number three, parapetia or reversal. Jesus stands. He speaks. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. In other words, go ahead. Follow the law you care so much about, but first fulfill it. First, look at yourselves and see how dehumanizing your actions are. Do you see how you robbed this woman of her personhood? Is that what Moses calls for in the law? This reversal is the instant when the action veers around to its opposite. Instead of the teachers of the law and Pharisees demanding that everyone condemn the woman's sin, Jesus invites them to look at their own fatal flaws and then bends back down to the ground. Element number four is anagnorisis or recognition. In an extremely rare moment of humility, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees recognize their own sin. We need to pause a moment here. The religious elite are notorious for their self-righteousness. They are the ones Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, pretty and clean on the outside but full of death on the inside. Luke records a parable about a Pharisee who publicly thanks God for making him better than everyone else. But a group of these law experts now walk away in shame. This recognition of theirs should shock us. This should be the part of the story everyone fixates on. The early interpreters must have noticed this. It took impressive effort to continue staring at the woman during this strange turn of events, but they did it anyway. Element number five, catharsis. This is the element I asked you to pay attention to at the beginning involving your emotions. Roberts and Jacobs tell us catharsis is the, quote, stimulation and subsequent elimination of strong emotions that occur as one watches or reads an effective tragedy, end quote. To create catharsis, these emotions must build and then be purged. In our story, tension and fear build with each thread added during the desis until we get to element number six, climax. The climax is where that emotion peaks, where the plot threads are as tight as they will get. Aristotle observes that frequently the climax is the exact moment as the reversal, and that's true in our story too. Once Jesus proclaims in the climax that only a sinless one may throw a rock, the reader can begin to breathe again. We can start to relax because we know Jesus has dodged the trap and the woman will receive mercy from the mob. Perhaps you've noticed these last five elements all happen at once. We've got the crisis, where Jesus is forced to decide his next move. We've got the reversal, where Jesus turns the accusatory tables on the Pharisees causing a U-turn in action, and we've got the corresponding recognition, where the accusers come to a new understanding. It all happens together, causing a peak and subsequent relaxation of tension. These elements are often bundled together in Aristotle's tragedies, too, and the effect is to leave the one watching the drama in utter certainty about where the story's main action and most important themes lie. Element number seven is Lucis. Lucis is the untying, where every plot thread now unravels and any remaining questions or mysteries are resolved. Here's where we find out what happens to the woman. Jesus stands and speaks to her. Does no one condemn you? He asks. No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're relieved the woman walks away uncondemned. But the central tension is long past. We never really feared that Jesus would condemn her because that would be entirely out of his character. Yet it seems early commentators expected and even hoped that Jesus would condemn her somehow. Why else would they be so surprised by his grace? They love to point out that he tells her to stop sinning, as though it's their consolation prize. This is why we have to get to my favorite and last element. It's where this lovely little story veers, friends. Get ready to open your ears. Element number eight is Hamardia. Roberts and Jacobs tell us Hamardia is, quote, the error or frailty that causes the downfall of a tragic protagonist, end quote. You may recall it as the fatal flaw, which always gets the tragic hero in the end. Often it's hubris or pride that causes their downfall. Here's where it gets interesting. Jesus is the protagonist in this story. He's the hero, but he has no fatal flaw. Where's the hamartia? Who sins in this story? Traditionally, we think of the woman. But when we consider the focus of all the other story elements, the climactic crisis, reversal, recognition, and catharsis, we see that the hamartia the author wants to highlight is not hers. It's the sin of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees the author points to. Not only does the climax of the story land on what Jesus says to the Pharisees, but the twist in the structure also points to them. An interpretation that focuses more on the woman's sin than theirs is far from what the author intended. How have so many interpreters decided that the crux of this story lies in its last bit of dialogue between Jesus and the woman? How do you explain that many interpreters are more surprised by Jesus' characteristic act of grace to an adulteress than by the notoriously self-righteous Pharisees' moment of humble self-awareness. Why are we more surprised that Jesus forgives her than we are shocked that her accusers would trap her and drag her in to begin with? Why do we brush off the treachery of the powerful men who use a defenseless woman to trap Jesus and focus instead on a woman's sexual activity. Because the stories of the Bible take place in a patriarchal society, and they're written by men influenced by that society, it can already be quite difficult to understand how God truly feels about women. In cases like this, where the interpreters are the ones who bend God's story and package their interpretation as truth, it becomes even more important to take back the narrative. When we misread this story, the woman remains dehumanized and the men remain empowered to objectify her. My hope is that understanding this story a bit better can help us see that similar situations continue to play out today. And that's the real tragedy. Next time, I'll focus on the scholarship of two women who proved that equality is the heart and soul of this story, and that Jesus himself is the one who creates it. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please hit that follow button so you don't miss the next episode. Thank you to our patrons. We added two new patrons last week, which is exciting times around here. If you'd like to become a patron too, please head to my website at marandjoe.com. And there you'll find information about how to support what we're doing. You'll, of course, get benefits. One that I'm excited about is a monthly Zoom call where we can actually take a look at each other and talk about what you're learning, what's challenging you, what you disagree with. I would love to see your faces and get to interact that way. So become a patron and then I can see your face. (laughs) One more big request. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you think it's a decent thing to give time to, boy, would I love it if you lit up five stars and told people why it was worth your time. That helps a lot, too. So thanks so much for all the support you all give and for just being here to begin with. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.